Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. During the years that I was in seminary, we spent a lot of time sitting around tables. Sometimes the fare was food, sometimes it was ideas, but for hours we sat, staring into one another's faces, trying to figure out who we were, what nourished us, and what we were doing there. As much as I loved seminary, it was also very hard because it took me a long, long time to convince anyone that God was actually calling me to the priesthood. And thus, I worked toward a degree in a field that I had no assurances whatsoever that I would ever be able to practice. It's a deep story of learning humility, but it is not the story that I am going to tell you today, at least not all of it. Today, I am going to tell you the story of someone that I met along the way. I'll call her Helen. Helen arrived at CDSP during my second year. She was a very large and imposing woman with a face set into what appeared to be a permanent scowl. She favored sitting in corners. It began to be whispered around that Helen came with an interesting history. She had been a nun. Now she wanted to be a priest. And, some said, she was really, really angry. Anger was kind of cool in those days of liberation theology. And thanks to my vocations committee and my own temperament, I had rather too much taste for holy rage. And it was <laughs> this that impelled me to seek out Helen. So one day I approached her, and after some preliminary greetings, I said with not a little admiration, I hear you were a nun. I was, she replied in a strong voice, but I left. It was a totally abusive experience. In the language of that time, abusive was about the worst thing you could call anyone. We thought a lot back then about how we used things and people, and to be used badly, which is what abuse means, was the ultimate violation of our contract with the universe. I've been abused, was the cry of all of us who felt hurt by members of our family, by circumstance, by the whims of the dominant culture. Abuse was the 1990s answer to original sin. And the idea that we might not be here to use anything had not occurred to a single one of us yet. But this was the spirit in which Helen told her story. It was the week she was stuck with kitchen duty. She had spent two hours scrubbing the kitchen floor on hands and knees until it gleamed, 
and was just knocking off when another sister wearing muddy boots turned up at the back door. Helen was about to ask her to take off her boots, but the other sister had already come in and left a series of muddy prints across the newly washed floor. Just look at what you have done. To which the other shrugged and said, that's your problem. She did it on purpose, Helen said. And it was at that moment that I realized that this whole place was dysfunctional and abusive and I could not take it any longer. That's terrible, I agreed. I could certainly feel her hurt and her rage and knew I would be quite furious in her place. But for some reason, her story left me very unsettled. It's all a matter of intention, said my husband, when I shared the story with him yesterday morning. If the other sister was just being thoughtless and uncaring, then it was wrong. But if she was making a point about patience and humility, then that would be a different matter. I thought about it for a moment and said, I suspect given my experience with life, that it was a little of both. Since that day, I have read a lot of monastic literature in both the Christian and in the Buddhist tradition. And I am here to tell you that Helen's was not the only kitchen floor to be messed up with muddy boots. You may have read the teaching tale about the Zen monk who is out there raking the garden and he finally has every path perfectly done when the teacher comes storming out, messes it all up and tells him to start all over again. Or you might know the story of the Tibetan saint, Milarepa, who had to build the same tower three times because just as he was about to put the final stone in, his master Marpa came and knocked the whole thing down, said it wasn't good enough and that he had to start over. And thinking about these tales, it becomes pretty easy to see that the point is not to finish the task, but to keep on doing something that is difficult and menial until the task becomes more important than the accomplishment and emptied of ego, the mind may at last see clearly. To take pride in doing what is simply expected of one is false pride. True humility, which is the ability to see and hear without self-interest, is gained by overcoming attachments to the ego and living in the simplicity and fullness of the moment. This is what monastics practice. And the wise teacher often instructs by driving his pupil to the brink of insanity. Now it all sounds very romantic when we talk about paths and towers in the contemplative world of the mysterious East. 
It's a little different when you get it back to California. None of our professors in seminary bore any at all any resemblance to these wise teachers. In fact, quite the contrary, most of them appeared to be nothing more than versions of ourselves with advanced degrees. And in this world, upsets and disappointments typically felt a lot more like abuse than they did like wise parables. From which I derived two pearls of wisdom. The first one, which is the hard one, is that I think whatever the circumstance, it may be impossible to learn humility without at least part of the time feeling totally humiliated. And I'm really sorry to share that one with you. I spent decades trying to find a way around it, and I haven't. But the second one is a lot nicer, and that is I think that wise teachers in real life are more invisible than wise teachers in books. So my question is, was there a wise teacher at the monastery who sat down with Helen and helped her sort out her conflicting emotions? Was that wise mother disguised as the thoughtless sister? Did Helen even bother to ask? Or, like most of us, was she protecting herself in a winner-take-all world? And what of today's gospel? Was Jesus out there making a mistake when he refused the Syrophoenician woman's request? Does this story catch Jesus refusing God's love and help to someone? Is it important that Jesus is shown up by a woman? Or is this even a story, despite outward appearance, just to the contrary, is this even a story about mistakes and comeuppances? Because as much as I love this story, for a whole lot of reasons, whenever I read it and want to go, oh Jesus, caught a goof, I remember Helen jumping to conclusions over her kitchen floor. Maybe Jesus in this story is appearing to make a mistake in order to help me see my own. Maybe Jesus is being a wise teacher and refusing a good request in the hope of hearing a better one. Maybe the teaching is less about Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman and more about the dogs under the table. Maybe what I take to be my own fast and well-educated spiritual depth is in the eyes of God just a few crumbs left over from the heavenly banquet. Or maybe this story is a counterpoint and continuation of last week's story, which as you recall, the Pharisees are criticizing Jesus' disciple for outward actions. They haven't washed before they eat. Well, this, and Jesus says, it's not what goes in that's important, goes in that's important, it's what's inside that is important. So this week we have a Syrophoenician woman who on the outside is not part of the community of the elect, but she shows by her inner intention and wisdom that she's got what is most important. By showing great purity of heart, 
the Syrophoenician woman shows that she is a wise teacher. And in a world that thought women were brainless, this counts for a great deal. And it is the mother's wisdom, not Jesus' intervention, that cures her child. And then we move on in this wonderful tension between inner and outer to the third story, which is the man who is deaf. And he can receive nothing from without, for he cannot hear the word of God. And so his inner life remains chaotic for lack of teaching, and Jesus heals that. So you have three stories that form a continuum. Now what's interesting here is that in the gospel, twice we get a taste of what is called the mark and secret. Jesus walks in and changes people's lives amazingly, and then he says, but don't tell anybody anything about it. Keep quiet. And is this too a kind of kitchen floor? That here Jesus has come, we're healed, we know what it's all about. But Jesus says, wait, you can't say anything about this until some muddy feet have crossed over your best ideas and you begin to understand what this really means. To jump to conclusions, says the author of the epistle of James, is to show partiality. And he writes, if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. We are not to make distinctions between rich and poor, between ourselves and the Syrophoenicians, between our hard work and the sister in muddy boots, between the world of the city and the world of nature. Now this sounds really great in theory, but I defy any of us to be able to do it in practice. To be human is to make distinctions. To be human is to think we know what is good and what is evil. To be human is to share our enthusiasms with others. All that said, the mystics still urge us to proceed with caution. They have cleaned enough floors, raked enough gardens, and built enough towers to know that even the things we believe with the most intensity and fervor might not in the end be true at all. Religion exists to help me turn my mind away from appearances and toward a deeper, more generous truth. Away from judgment and more toward simple observation. Away from talking about things off the top of my head and more toward the hard work of understanding. In my many years of wrestling with this, I think that nature, the natural world, may be the ultimate monastic kitchen. Nature unlike me, makes no distinctions. That is her beauty, and that is her terror. I can no more bargain with a thunderstorm than I can bargain with God. And like God, nature gives and nature takes away. One of the gifts of living in Marin County 
and indeed the reason that I live here is that we still have large swaths of the natural world from which to learn. But even here, with that richness and beauty, temptations of wealth and prestige have turned us away from nature and the ability of nature to set limits and has led us to, to the pride of our own ability to invent and tweak endless and infinite possibilities. We go out and run for the cure, forgetting that all must eventually die. We are so busy with our own genius that it gives us an excuse not to stop and think. Until the late 19th century, all of California was so rich in life that it took people's breath away. To come here in the spring was to encounter carpets of wildflowers as far as the horizon, what John Muir called bee pastures. Mm -hmm. One could see the snowy Sierra from the Berkeley Hills. One old timer, Bill Barnes, who died in 1954, remembered when 2,000 antelope came to drink at a waterhole, when millions of birds congregated on Pelican Island to raise their young, when inland otters were so plentiful and playful. Others recall a living water table so rich and so high that even with our dry season, the trees were huge, their branches raised toward flocks of migrating birds so thick that their passage darkened the sky. Today, I consider myself blessed if I see two little flocks of 10 geese flying overhead. But being human beings, we who came to California made a distinction between those gifts freely given by God and the wealth that could be leached from them. And today, the great valley at the heart of our state is slowly dying. The living waters turning saline from evaporation, the soils laced with pesticides. People saw divine mystery, but being human, their eyes were blinded by gold, as if seeing their faces through a glass darkly. The image of the mirror, it's one of the most common ones in mystical literature in all traditions. We see an image of ourself and we mistake that image for the truth. And to go beyond the wall of mirrors, says Mohawk shaman Oki Simene Forest, the final challenge is to find in those mirrors a tiny door and to pass through the tiny doors. To get through it, we must make ourselves very, very small, be very humble. On the other side is a clear pond. There, for the first time, we will be able to see our true reflection. This passage amazed me because it is so biblical. We have the glass darkly. We have what Jesus teaches is the narrow way. And we end 
Where else but Psalm 23, beside the still waters? We are called to walk that narrow way, to open our ears to God's word. Earth is indeed the floor beneath our feet. Earth is the floor upon which our sacred table rests. The Syrophoenician woman reminds us that we can have no salvation without the otters, the pelicans, and the dogs at our feet. She reminds us that we can have no salvation without the other. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorNV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.